podcast about product management, user experience design, technology, and more. This is Product by Design. All right. Welcome to another episode of Product by Design. I am Kyle, and today we are joined by another awesome guest, uh, Ellie Packhouse. Uh, welcome to the show, Ellie. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. Well, let me do a brief intro for Ellie, and then you can tell us a little bit more about yourself. But Ellie is a serial inventor and two-time founder. Uh, he started his first company, Singular Sound, with his brother in 2013, and has since launched eight blockbuster products. And uh, in 2017, they launched another company, InstaFloss, which we're going to talk a lot more about. But with that, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself, uh, what you've done, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll start there. So yeah, I think, uh, thank you for the introduction. <laughs> so I'm, I'm definitely an inventor first and a uh, business owner and manager entrepreneurial by necessity. <laughs> you know, uh, I love coming up with ideas for products. I love solving needs with gadgets. I love understanding how things work, but you know, that's only a, you know, a spark compared to the bonfire that is actually uh, following through. You know, it's very easy to come up with ideas. You can have a thousand ideas in a day, but, you know, for example, on InstaFloss that, that you had mentioned, we've been doing R&D on that for five years. So the amount of ideas I've had to not pursue in order to try to bring InstaFloss into the world has been, you know, almost all of them. <laughs> so, so there, there's a huge difference between ideas and, and follow through and, uh, the lessons on follow through are sometimes harder than the lessons on ideas, but it all starts with the idea. If you don't have a fundamentally good idea, your follow through is going to be flawed from the beginning. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm super excited to talk more about that because I think kind of like you mentioned, being able to understand the right ideas and the follow through and prioritization is I think so fascinating in entrepreneurship, in, uh, in product management, in, in so many things that we do. But before we dive into that, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about what you like to do outside of, uh, some of the inventing and entrepreneurship that you are involved in? Oh, you know, that's, it's <laughs> a lot of fun. Um, so um, I'm a giant nerd. I like reading. I like board games. Uh, you know, I, I enjoy video games. I enjoy just various, you know, topics. You know, if there's if there's something that you can just do, get lost in deep research. Uh, you know, I, I love getting books on the subject and then getting books that, that disagree with that point of view. You know, I, I like not having a very uh, strongly held belief. You know, I try to, you know, read one book and then try to read another book that, you know, refutes that book. And try to see the shades of gray and the, the more deep you go into any topic, the more shades of gray you're going to see. And, uh, I find that to be fascinating. Just like when you get under the hood, how little we're actually certain about certain things, you know, and you start reading the paper, the, the science, uh, studies, you know, that they've done and you're like, well, this is what they've actually said. And this is the very narrow thing that they ruled <laughs> out. And, you know, people tend to make that into uh, a lot more than it is. Um, but also, I spend a lot of time in front of a computer screen and I spend a, a lot of time, uh, you know, on my couch 
you know, like reading or like playing chess or something. So I really relished the opportunity to get away from this. I enjoy backcountry uh, camping. You know, I like having nothing but uh, what I can fit in a pack and seeing how long I can spend in the wilderness with my girlfriend, uh, woken up by the sun, going to sleep when it's dark, having no uh, technology whatsoever. And I don't know how that relates to being an inventor. You think I would love gizmos, but sometimes it just feels really refreshing to get rid of them all. Not not a single electronic, no screen, like not even an extra, you know, more than two pairs of socks, you know, so one for sleeping and one for daytime. So uh, it really feels like you're you're letting the the, the mind relax. And I, th- I think it's important. You know, it's like if you are a weightlifter and you're always contracting your muscle in one position, it's super beneficial to contract the antagonist muscles. Uh, so I kind of feel like getting rid of all technology is that working the antagonist, so to speak, and kind of gives you a fresh perspective because when you have nothing, you really think about your needs, <laughs> how nice it would be eventually for there to be some device that can fix this for you. <laughs> so uh, so I, I, that probably plays a, a role in, in why I enjoy uh, the backcountry so much. Yeah, absolutely agree. Uh, do you have a, a place or places that you like to go uh, most in the backcountry or, or is it just anywhere? Um, so I'm partial to mountains. And um, I, I, I don't want to say that these are my favorite mountains, but these are the mountains that I visited the most often, and therefore they've become the most sentimental to me. Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, like, you know, I, I read up, you know, on these mountains and now suddenly, you know, they're the, I don't, I don't even think they're the prettiest, but that's the Appalachian Mountains. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really like backcountry in the Appalachian Mountains. The, the Appalachian Mountains are older than terrestrial life. So uh, any creature on land, you know, is younger than these mountains. And that just gives it this really, I don't know what sort of, I don't know how to describe the emotion, but you look at it and you just wonder what was here before. And the answer is like, almost everything you can imagine. <laughs> you know, it, it, these mountains existed in Pangea, you know, part of the Appalachians, so to speak, are in Morocco uh, and are in um, Scotland. So, you know, that's really old and it feels really uh, magical every time I go. Yeah, I was just reading a, and I haven't done any research on that, but like you were saying, they had discovered a cave uh, apparently that had literally no life in it in the Appalachians. And, And that was the point is like these those mountains are so old, they're older than life itself on earth, basically. And and that's just, it's crazy to think about that. That's how old those mountains are, which is why they're so uh, smaller than other mountain ranges. I'm, I'm, I live in the Rocky mountains. And so like we have a very much, yeah. uh, very younger mountains, which is why they're, they're so much taller, but the Appalachians are so much worn down, more worn down because they're so much older than many other mountain ranges, which is, uh, which is crazy to think about. It's, it's just like people, you know, yeah. like they're young, tall and perky when they're in their youth. And then, you know, you sort of like shrink and, you yep. know, get eroded with time. Yeah. But uh, but just like with people, you know, so much more has happened. Appalachians. So it's a different appreciation. I also really love the Rockies. I think if I had to pick a second favorite mountain, it would be the Rocky Mountain Range. Yeah. Which yep. is kind of cheating because it like 
<laughs> goes from the bottom of the continent all the way to like Alaska. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so take your pick. To, yeah, it, it's a big one. Lot, lots to choose from, but both both really, really good ones. So I guess you can't really go wrong, especially when you're here and can choose from some really, really good ones and lots of good backcountry uh, hiking and other activities to do. So that's that's awesome. All right. One, one, one thing yeah. it, it's probably the weirdest mountains I've ever been to were uh, the mountains in Zhangjiajie, which is in China. Um, all, and I think in English they call them the Hallelujah Mountains. Is where they filmed Avatar. It looks like you are in a fictional world. Just Google Hallelujah Mountains. Uh, I would have thought it was from a video game, but it's real, <laughs> and it's it's truly a, a breathtaking experience just to see the variety of geological forms that can exist on our own planet. Wow. Okay, we'll have to take a look at that. I'm interested now. I, I don't think I've seen that yet. Cool. All right. Well, I'm I'm interested to dive more into some of your journey and some of the things that we've kind of touched on so far, but maybe you can tell us a little bit more about what got you into inventing in the first place and and the journey that brought you to where you are. So, you know, what what kind of sparked your interest in inventing new products, in founding companies and and you know, what has brought you to this point of, you know, launching some of these products that you have? Well, you know, I guess it, it depends on what you call the, the first very spark, you know, uh, when you're two years old and wondering how the world works sort of thing. But if we were to get into a sort of like, where was the first real step taken towards actually coming out with something, not just thinking about stuff or having ideas or being on your couch and imagining stuff, which, you know, I feel like we, we all do. And, you know, we are all our inventors in our brain. Uh, but, you know, where was the, the first tangible step to taking something from the brain and being like, we are coming out with this product. And that was uh, with my brother. He's a musician and he was spending a bunch of time at home and he wanted a drummer to play with. But drummers are the hardest musicians to come by. Uh, they have a lot of equipment. Uh, it's hard to bring their equipment over. If they do bring the equipment over, the neighbors are mad. Uh, most parents don't even want their children learning the drums. So just as a, like a, a per capita musician's basis, uh, you're going to just know fewer drummers. And so he's like, okay, well, let me get a drum machine. But all drum machines were tabletop devices that he had to use your hands for. And if you're a guitarist playing solo, you need your hands to play guitar. So it's not like really an option. You could play a pre-recorded track, but part of the fun of being a musician is making stuff up. So how do you make stuff up without while keeping your hands free to use guitar. And so the idea was a drum machine that you could control in a guitar pedal. So you can tap it once and it will insert a fill. You can hold it and it will build up a transition. When you let go, it will move into another verse. So you have this sort of flexible and fluid control. And uh, at the time I was uh, tutoring physics. And so my brother like came to me and he's like, you know, how it's going to work fundamentally. And so, you know, me and my youthful hubris was like, well, if you know physics, you know everything, <laughs> which for the record is not true at all. Uh, don't, don't buy into that. But, um, you know, we realized that you can do this via uh, a series of MIDI commands. And, and so we started talking to musicians like, oh, hey, we have this idea. And every musician was like, oh, my God, I need that. And we're like, wait, if that's the reaction we get. And everyone immediately understands the value proposition of the product and that their lives would be beneficial to having the product. 
instead of just making this uh you know as a one-off little fun thing why don't we actually start selling this to musicians so i was a physics tutor i didn't really have that much money uh, <laughs> you know and neither did my brother at the time but we managed to find a a engineering firm where the engineers were musicians and which is actually uh, highly correlated um i have hypotheses though i don't know for certain and typically if you are an engineer or any sort of highly skilled profession you probably grew up in a household that had the resources to give you an education and if they had resources to give you an education they also had resources to you know give you hobbies and that sort of thing so that's just a hypothesis you know it's hard to a b test the universe and create a planet earth <laughs> where this doesn't happen but that that is uh, that is my best guess as to why that correlation exists and they immediately understood the value as well you know so if we were talking to people who weren't musicians they would be like I don't get this, you know, but, but because they understood the value and because they knew that this was going to be commercially successful, they were like, hey, why don't you go on Kickstarter? We're going to build a prototype for you and we're not going to bill you yet uh, because we believe in the product so much that we know you're going to be successful and you're not going to be successful without a prototype. So we're going to build you a prototype in order to become successful and then you're going to pay us. And I understand that's a very rare situation. You know, it's almost like people taking faith in you, taking a risk on you, gambling on you. I mean, I think in our lives, we sort of underestimate um, the power and importance of people believing in you um, in order to get where you get. You know, it's like, oh, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps or, you know, I, I did all this myself. And that's... I don't know. That's just puffery. Uh, if it wasn't for them, I can't say with confidence that we would have done it. You know, maybe we could have raised money from investors or something, but we knew nothing about that at the time. You know, and if you, it's hard enough for people to raise money from investors who are seasoned entrepreneurs who read all sorts of books and know everything and like, you know, done it previously, but we could have been successful. We could have not been successful. We could have been successful in getting an, uh, an investor who would have then ruined the project because they had clauses in, their, in the operating agreements where, you know, it has to go in their direction and their direction sucks. <laughs> so, um, so I want to say we got lucky in finding people who believed in the product. But then again, that really speaks to the importance of you have to have a product worth believing in. You know, if, if, if we didn't come up with that idea, they wouldn't have believed in it. And then they wouldn't have taken a gamble on us and we would not have been where we were. So we launched a crowdfunding campaign. We broke records for the most money raised for a music, uh, musical accessory. And our company was born. We were able to bootstrap that. We never took investment. Um, we uh, funneled that into more products and then more products. And we came out with uh, seven products in that company really bumpy journey because honestly uh this was about 10 years ago and at the time neither of us really knew that much but you know we sort of dove head in and uh then just to bring you up to today in 2017 um it goes back to the sort of need you know my brother was at home and he needed a musician a, a drummer to play with so i was eating mango again with my brother and like things were getting, you know, stuck in our teeth and we're like, man, we really just need a device to just get rid of all this because flossing is quite tedious. And then similar to the reactions that musicians gave, uh, except unprompted, people would actually come up to me and be like, hey, you design products, right? Like, that's your job. I'm like, yeah. They're like, I hate flossing. You know, <laughs> can you make something that does it for me automatically? 
And this happened like a spooky number of times within a short period. Like, you know, I'm saying like five people in two weeks, right when my brother and I had the DM. And when an idea is out there, um, someone's going to do it. You know, the uh, two different patents were filed within an hour of each other for the telephone. You know, so so it's Alexander Graham Bell and the guy we can't remember because <laughs> yeah. Alexander Graham Bell was first by one hour. So when when the idea is out there, because, you know, none of your ideas are truly original. Mm-hmm. At best, you're piecing together other stuff. You're like, why don't we take a battery and connect it with a thing that, you know, that does X, you know, and it's like, you didn't invent the battery. You didn't invent, you know, the, the thing you're attaching to it. You know, you're just at best piecing together ideas that are floating out there. And when yeah. the right ideas are floating out there, like magnets are going to connect and other people are having this idea. And in fact, I guarantee you that a thousand people had this idea on the same day that I had. <laughs> um, but I did a patent search. I looked, no one had patented the uh, concept that I had. So I, you know, I contacted the lawyers by this time, by 2017, I knew a little bit more about making products. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I went to the patent lawyers first before actually trying to develop anything. And then I spent the next five years, and we can get into the weeds, and I'm sure we will, uh, of developing Instafloss. Uh, it took a lot longer than I ever imagined it would, but, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of what we've done, and we, we actually have done it. You can floss your teeth in 10 seconds, five years later. <laughs> okay, I'm... I'm super, uh, super excited to talk about that because it's one of those things. And I totally agree with what, what you're saying. Like when something is in just the general milieu of, of our culture and, and the ideas are there that it becomes kind of this thing that you, you know, will, will be solved kind of like you were talking about with the telephone and, and so many other inventions, like they're they're that when you read the history of it, that it's not kind of this single um, out of the blue thing. It's this building of, you know, multiple, uh, iterations and, and eventually all of it starts to come together into these things that if, you know, uh, Alexander Graham Bell doesn't do it, somebody else is going to do it. If uh, Nikola Tesla doesn't do it, somebody else is, is right there on the cusp of doing the same thing because, you know, the ideas are there, uh, in, it, almost in the air and, and it, it's almost just a matter of time before, you know, somebody grabs hold of it and, and says, you know, this is something that we need to, we need to solve. And, and it's kind of like you were saying, like, Hey, you know, how, how do we solve this problem? And it's something that everybody's feeling, but you know, we don't, we don't have a solution for it. And, and it, it's funny cause I, I, I have not gone out and invented a whole bunch of of, um, products like you have, but we'll have those conversations. Like my wife and I will talk and be like, somebody should fix this problem or make something that fixes this problem. And, and I'll, I'll be like, you know, it, it doesn't have to just be somebody like this is, this is the kind of thing that like, if there's not an answer to it, like you can just do it, like we could do it. And then usually we don't, but like, those are the types of things like you're taking and saying somebody should do it. And that somebody should be me and, and you go out and you actually do it. So I'm, I'm interested, um, kind of like you mentioned, because this is a big part of what you do in, um, choosing the specific problems that you're going to solve versus the ones that you're not going to solve. How do you go about doing that? Because obviously there's the ones that uh, you, you say yes to, and then the hundreds or thousands or, or whatever it is 
that you say no to? You know, how, how do you identify the ones you want to do and the ones that you don't want to do? Right. So I have a journal of the ideas that I come up with, the zany things while I'm in the shower or waking up from a dream or on the couch or just, you know, you know, stuck with some problem like traffic. And I'm just like, ah, there's got to be some way. So and I'm, and I'm sure, you know, everybody has these ideas. So what I do is I write them down and I rank them in a five by five by five uh, system. The first number is uh, what is the potential um, of this idea? Um, actually, there's a, a, a fourth metric here. But the first one is, is what is the, the, the monetary potential? If you solve a problem that only like two people care about, then, you know, the, per, perhaps there's a potential there, but, but maybe it's not as good as pursuing as, as your uh, other ideas. The uh, second variable is what is the, um, what is the technical and or financial difficulty of coming out with it? So you might have an idea for uh, nuclear uh, fusion and the, uh, and that would re really help everyone on the planet, you know, like, like it doesn't get bigger than that, but in terms of the difficulty, like, and how confident you are in your ability to create that, you know, so it might be a five in terms of, you know, application, but it's probably a one in terms of, you know, your, your confidence in your solution. So the, the lower, the second number is kind of the, the bigger of a risk it is. And you have to decide like, uh, what am I, uh, willing to gamble both with my time and with the likelihood and with the, the finances. Um, and then the, the third number is, you know, how much does it actually improve? Because you can have something that's applicable to everyone and maybe it's not even that hard or, or that costly to create, but it's not that much of a better solution. So if you're fighting an uphill battle, the, the better your solution is, the, the stronger your position. You know, you, you want a good product in your pocket to fight against, you know, big name brands. If you have something that's like marginally better, you may succeed, but you have a marginal edge on them. And they have other edges. They have money. They have name brands. They have uh, distribution channels and so on. And so if you have a, your slight product advantage may not be uh, significant enough to, um, to overcome that. I mean, other things I would look at would be, is it patentable? Do a patent search. Go to Google Patents and before you even pay a lawyer, look yourself and see if it hasn't been patented, then you might be able to protect yourself because you're going to need every uh, benefit that you can, every every advantage that you can. If it's not patented, even if you have a significant advantage, um, if you've spent the money to develop the product, you're sort of doing free R&D for larger companies. And I'm not saying you can't succeed, but you're going to need more than the idea to succeed. You're going to need more money than you think because they're going to out-advertise you. You're going to need more labor than you think because they're going to out-sales you, you know. Uh, you're going to need to be faster than you think because they're going to catch on. Um, a patent really is a nice shield. They have to be willing to defend it. You have to have a good patent. You know, this costs money to create, to upkeep, to uh, defend. If you don't defend your patent, it's essentially an admission that your patent is not worth anything. So... I'm not saying that this is foolproof, but it really gives you a better position, especially if you're a smaller person. Now, if you're in a larger company and say you're a, a product designer for, 
you know, I don't want to throw out any names, but some, you know, some large, large conglomerate. And you know that like, hey, I can make something that's like 2% better and we have the market position to to, to nail it, then, then yeah, go for it. But if you're, you know, a physics tutor <laughs> in your living room with your brother, then, you know, I'm not going to advise you to have the hubris to believe that 2% better solution is sufficient to fight against the, uh, you know, people with better resources than you. Yep. No, that that's, um, that's really, really good to, to be able to look at all of those different, uh, factors and, and vectors of, you know, how, how do we really understand if, you know, doing this or doing any of these different ideas is worth both the effort and the risk in order to say like, you know, here's a whole bunch of different things that, that we can tackle from, an invention perspective and uh, a, a, a product perspective and say, you know, which of these ideas, given all of the possibilities and also the limited resources of time and money and, and opportunity is the most likely to both succeed and, and be, you know, worth investing in. Now, as you were doing that with, with Instafloss, and, and maybe you can tell us a little bit more about, you know, what, what that looks like and, and what that whole experience was like, you know, as you took that idea, how did you go through that and, you know, eventually land on, yes, this is, this is what the next thing is and how we're going to pursue it. So, uh, quite simply, the first number was a five, everybody (laughs) has teeth. Um, and the more I researched the issue, the more I was convinced of the, um, application of it. Um, 70% of Americans, and this is Americans. Americans have some of the best dental hygiene statistics in the world. Um, 70% of Americans regularly skip flossing. And the number one reason they give is because it takes too long. So there, and that leads to health issues down the line. So there's a real need um, that is held by a lot of people. And, and the 30% that do floss, you know, they could also be enticed by like, hey, I would love for it to be more effective. I would love for it to take long, uh, less time. I would love for it to be less painful. Just because you do something doesn't mean you like it. Um, so in my mind, I just like couldn't sleep for a month the more I was researching it. And I just started like shaking back and forth the mantra, like everybody has teeth. Everybody has teeth. Because <laughs> um, the company I had with my brother, you know, I'm very proud of what we've done and uh, what the company is continuing to do. But we create high end technology for musicians. 10% of the population in the developed world plays any kind of instrument. Probably 10% of those are at all serious. And probably, you know, a fraction of those buy high tech gear for their. Um, for their hobby. So we are going after a small sliver of the market. And I was like, I don't want to have hubris and say that, uh, you know, I'm a great businessman or a great inventor or a great engineer or a great marketer or any of these things. But if I was just succeeding to the same level that I'm doing with, with singular sound, as I would with Instafloss, the, the multiple, we would be doing, you know, 500 times more than we were doing in singular sounds just due to the market size just due to the 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 magnitude of the need so that was definitely probably the largest pull and the second pull was i was very confident in the technical feasibility of our solution you know so i i started reading uh dental 
textbooks, you know, what, you know, what you get in, in dental school. So I started reading them to understand, you know, what are we trying to physically accomplish uh, with flossing. I started taking apart devices and I realized that there was technology we could piggyback on. I was like, you know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. There's certain devices out there that do sort of in part what we want InstaFloss uh, to do. They, they take even longer than string flossing, mm-hmm. but, um, but the fundamental technology we can use in InstaFloss, I'm like, we could piggyback off this. Essentially, if we take uh, water flossers or manual jets, and this was the, the, the thinking, and they can be, they, they shoot a jet of water that's pulsing at a, a high PSI um, within a safe range uh, to remove plaque and go, get underneath your gum line and remove bacteria and biofilm. Um, from underneath your gum line, which helps with your gum health. And the advantage of this is, number one, it's more effective in terms of it can re- remove more plaque, it can uh, disturb more biofilm, it can get rid of more bacteria, it can clean underneath the gum line 360 degrees around each tube, and which string floss has a very difficult time, if not impossible, doing. It's more comfortable. It's adjustable based on your needs. So there's all these advantages. But okay, why doesn't everybody water floss instead of string floss? And the thing is, the number one complaint about flossing is that it takes too long. And water flossers take even longer than string. So they take the number one complaint and take even longer. And I saw like I am doing research, like, okay, I know these products exist, but how much money do they make for making the number one complaint worse? Holy moly, they sell $1.2 billion worth of these devices every year for making the number one complaint worse. What could we do if we made the number one complaint better? So that was uh, my line of thinking. And I realized these jets individually work, but the issue is that they're manual and you have to trace your gum line in the front and you have to do it in the back. And when you do it in the back, you're not getting it at the recommended 90 degree angle. So you're not being as effective as the literature says that you could be. Um, And because you're trying to aim, you make a mess. And I looked on Amazon and like, 80% 80% of the one-star reviews on water flossers are like, oh man, it's super messy. You know, it's like, yeah, it's because you're aiming and you need to look in the mirror and it splatters. So the idea was what if instead of taking one water flossing jet, we had a manifold that wrapped around your teeth and we had 12 jets that fired at the correct 90 degree angle uh, with enough of a spread to cover 100% of the gum line uh, in as much of the population as possible. And it can rotate from one molar to the other. So you have 100% application. So it doesn't matter if you're lazy. It doesn't matter if you miss any areas. It doesn't matter if you're bad at flossing, which almost everybody is. And what if we piece it together like that? And all we're doing is piggybacking on the technology. Like you said, when the idea is out there, you just take it and you take ideas that are out there and you piece it together because there's 50 years of scientific literature on the effectiveness of these water jets. If we made our water jets exactly like those, we'd be piggybacking on that literature. And um, we would uh, then be able to give it a better application and get done in 10 seconds, which solves the number one issue instead of worse. I actually have a device here. I know that um, this is uh, primarily audio. <laughs> I can show you. you can see there's an H-shaped manifold. Uh, you don't just have to open as wide as you do with an electric toothbrush. So I'll go like this. Huh? Uh, well, <laughs> So for those listening, I just rotate it from one side of the mouth to the other. It's 100% coverage. So then I was like, wow, that is a simple piggybacking of technology. So I ranked the uh, the R&D as a two. Turns out I was really wrong. <laughs> the uh, There's a reason it took us five years to develop it, because 
going from one to 12 jets is not just a matter of piecing them together. Apparently, completely new um, obstacles are created when you try to do that that we had not anticipated. I mean, one of the things we actually had to discover was like, how far apart can the jets be and still give 100% coverage? You know, how, what is the number of jets? So I always partner with people who know more than you. So I partnered from the beginning with Dr. Anna Muskrenhas, who's on the uh, chair of the American Dental Association Council of Science. I had sent a lot of emails. I got lucky. She took my email. She allowed me to come into her office. I talked about the plans. It was like, I really need a dental scientist mind on this to, you know, really cross the T's, dot the I's, let me know if there's mistakes in this. And, you know, she loved it. And she was like, okay, this is what you need to do. And so what we were doing was uh, before we did any sort of testing on humans, we took uh, pig heads because pig flesh is very similar to uh, humans, oddly enough. Um, and what we would do is we would floss the pigs and then we would cut away their, they were dead already. <laughs> <laughs> just putting that out there uh we would we would floss the pigs and then we would cut away the gums and see one side compared to another of you know how effective we were being how far away the jets were etc and so we we understood some some fundamentals uh via the you know via via the pig studies you know and that's something i never would have known to do if it wasn't for partnering with a dental scientist of how to sort of go along in the in the r d stage of you know now you have to make it modifications to your prototype based on, on on what you're finding is it getting rid of the plaque is it getting 100 coverage do we have enough jets etc that is this is super super interesting and and the like what you showed is you know having it kind of rotate around your whole mouth is i think really really cool it, it's one of those things that and i've said I've talked about this for a long time with, with my wife as well, that, uh, the fact that it's always surprised me, um, because I'm, I'm one of those people I literally floss like every day. I'm probably one of like the very few who's like an adamant flosser. And it always amazes me like that we haven't advanced our technology of like, uh, flossing and that sort of thing in, you know, whatever it is, like, you know, uh, 50 years, like you said, like it's, I, I feel like we could do so much more for dental health and we just haven't. And that always surprises me and dismays me that it's like, and I don't, I've, I've just never understood the reason for it. Obviously you've never done anything about it, but it's just one of those things that I'm just like, well, you know, how are, how are we still doing this? And like, this is the best we can do. And um, so that uh, this is why I'm, I'm excited to be talking about it for one. And then also just being able to say like, here's, here's a real problem and here's how we go about like finding a solution. And it's obviously not an easy solution because like you said, it's been, you, you've had to go through some serious development of it for, for years. It's not like you can go and say, okay, we're going to just kind of uh, do some, some fitting and um, you know, make a, make a few modifications and, and we'll be ready to go. Um, what has been the, uh, you know, the most difficult part about, you know, getting, uh, Instafloss, uh, ready for, um, you know, to, to go to market. Um, and then we will, we'll start there and then I kind of want to expand on that question, but for Instafloss specifically, like what, what was kind of the most difficult part? So for Instafloss specifically, um, 
there have been a, a number of things that have <laughs> been uh, hard parts of the journey. I would say that in the beginning, the design was a mouth guard. And because, I don't know, that's just what I conceived of at first. Like, oh, you put a mouth guard, it just makes sense, right? It does it all for you. But there were some fundamental issues with that design. Number one, everybody has a different bite. And so if you're going to make a mouth guard, you're going to need to create a custom unit for each person. And that does not have economies of scale. Um, so it would end up being very expensive. It would be hundreds of dollars, not for the device, just for the mouthpiece. And then on top of that, the mouthpiece, if it didn't have moving parts, then if it didn't have moving parts, it, we, we would only be able to put a bunch of jets that would uh, get between the teeth. And yeah, that would clean between the teeth, but one of the advantages of water flossing is that you can clean a full 360 degrees around each tooth. And so we would make it a lot more expensive, not mass manufacturable, um, and it wouldn't even give as good of a clean, you know? And it would have to be a much uh, more complicated device with a million different tunnels for everything like that. And coming up with a, like the aid shape, which essentially what this is, this is a cross section of a mouth guard. Um, Except it doesn't matter what your bite is. The top part and the bottom part move independently. So it doesn't matter what your bite shape is. So you could have an overbite, an underbite. You could have uh, crooked paths, etc. And we can mass manufacture this for just a couple bucks. Uh, just the mouthpiece, not the whole device. Um, so we go from something that is complicated, prone to break, um, expensive, doesn't even do as good of a job, to something that can be mass manufactured do a better job and cheaper. And I, I would say that was a very difficult mental barrier to break because when you have an initial idea of what the product is, uh, it's hard to, you know, you, you keep thinking of ways to make a mouth guard work instead of thinking like, no, how do I solve the problem? And you have to be solution-based. And then when you realize like, really what I care about is the jets and where the jets go. And I don't care how the jets get there as long as they get to the right place. And when you stop thinking about your idea of a solution, and instead on the results, you open your brain for a lot more um, creativity for the, the solution. And, and I do want to credit my co-founder, Dr. Ralph Raud, with actually uh, coming up with that, which is a whole other thing. We're always partner with people who know more than you, especially in domains that you're uh, not the most uh, expertise. And so without Dr. Ralph Raud and without Dr. Anna Muskerinhaus, uh, I would probably still be on the couch today thinking of, of ideas or I'd come out with something that didn't work and it wasn't effective. Another, it's funny you use the word difficult. Uh, there's many different kinds of difficulty. And I would say the most, and this is just unexpected, but the most physically difficult part of the process, which, you know, comes out of nowhere is, so after we had done the uh, pig experiments, you know, where we, we understood, okay, this is how far apart the jets need to be. These are their correct angles. This is how much. This is, you know, where the proper diameters, et cetera. And we, we kind of have a fundamental thing in, in theory that we've now refined our prototypes. We wanted to test it on humans. Now, this was in the very early stages. It was just me and my co-founder and then Dr. Anna Mascarenhas as the advisor. Um, you know, we had a couple contract engineers, you know, doing some parts that we weren't specialized in. But, but really, it was more or less that you two-person gig. Um, and so I figured, so wisely, before doing any 
you know, large scale human studies, I got to feel it for myself. And I have to know if I like it, you know, if, if I don't like it, how can I sell this product? How can I stand behind? So how can I have, even ask other people to put it in their mouths? So we had a prototype that was early stage, the, the, the mouthpiece worked, but we hadn't designed the pump and the reservoir and the electronics. So we kind of had the system where instead of like a little tank of water that doesn't want to floss, we were just using a giant bucket and we had a hose in there. And so it was kind of like this giant contraption that allowed infinity water. And so I tried it. I'm like, whoa, this feels really nice. And so I would floss and, you know, I just, I just get lost in the feeling and I would do it for about two minutes, which, which felt right to me because that's around how much time I spend flossing uh, prior to this device. But take a step back, do the math. InstaFloss provides a full floss in 10 seconds. So every 10 seconds is the equivalent of two minutes. So two minutes is 120 seconds. That's a 24 minute floss. If I'm doing it for two to three minutes, it's 24 to 36 minutes of flossing. I'm doing that multiple times a day just because it feels nice and many days in a row. That is what we call overflossing. And that is a really terrible idea. And the terribleness of this idea was about to be demonstrated to me really <laughs> in the face. So after uh, about a few days of doing this, I, my gums started hurting, my teeth started hurting. I'm like, oh, what's going on? I don't understand, like, you know, why why I'm, I'm feeling so much pain. I'm flossing, right? Hey, it's great. Um, and then I start breaking out in sores, like on my gums, on my tongue, on my uvula, like everywhere in between my teeth, you know? Like it was the most pain. I couldn't drink water because it was so painful. And so I rush over to a dentist to be like, what's going on in my mouth? And he's like, okay, you have ANOG, which uh, the, the, the slang term for this is trench mouth. Uh, essentially, what you did is you stripped off the entire, you know, top layer of your gums and you allowed any sort of pathogen that wants to come into your mouth, come into your mouth. So I have to prescribe you antibacterials, antifungals, um, antivirals, any domain of life that exists. Let's just kill it. Um, and that was a tough recovery, um, which I know. It doesn't sound so great <laughs> when, you know, I'm, I'm here and chatting with people like, no, 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 really use the product. But this is very early on in the journey with, you know, very early prototypes. And there were a couple hard lessons uh, from that that we actually took and into the design of the product, which was um, we allowed only one use in the reservoir. So if you're going to do it, you know, the equivalent of, you know, 20 times like I was doing, you have to do it fairly intentionally. And then we also have an LED on the device that starts blinking yellow when it's like, hey, slow down, stop. And then we will turn off the flossing for a 10 second period, not a big deal. But at least if you're going to try to do what I did, you'd have to floss for 10 seconds, wait 10 seconds, refill, floss again, you know, like do this process a bunch of times where it's like at this point, you're intentionally hurting yourself. You know what they say, like you can make something foolproof, but you can't make it damn foolproof. <laughs> like if you wanted to poke yourself in the eye with the device, you could poke yourself in the eye with the device. Like I can't stop you from doing that. You know, don't do it. Uh, what I can do is is not make it easy to do that. And uh, that was something that, uh, you know, I'm glad I did it on myself first. I'm not going to sue my own company, <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, it really, you know, it's, it's, it's the where you don't expect that sort of experimentation uh, to take you, you know, of, of the amount of suffering you may have to go through to come out with a, a product. Oh my goodness. That's wow. Uh, yeah. I did not expect that, but that is, uh, 
that's a, I guess that's really good learning to have early on, on you know, what, what to do to make it kind of, like you said, as foolproof as possible, uh, against some of the, the things that, uh, users might do. Was there anything else that you kind of learned or, or any other difficulties like either with this or, or kind of along your entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, of course. I mean, I'm always uh, learning. Just to put a cap on the on uh, the the hurting yourself. Thing. When I told Dr. Anna Masqueranhouse about this, who was a dental researcher, like she looked at me in shock, and she's like, "This is why companies and research labs have rules for how they engage with human subjects." Uh, thank you for demonstrating why we do it the way we do. And so when we started doing human tests on uh, Instafloss, the very first thing I did was call Dr. Anna and be like, hey, we need to conduct some studies. How do we actually <laughs> uh, go about this in an ethical and safe way? Um, so, so yeah, so none of our, our, our testers further down the line went through what I did. I'm, I'm, I'm glad it was me and no one else. But in terms of lessons, I mean, I'm trying to learn every day. Uh, I'm going to admit that I'm probably making mistakes every day. And that's why there is something to learn every day. And if you um, think that you're not making mistakes, that's your first mistake. And, uh, <laughs> you know, check that before you check anything else. But I mean, one lesson that I got, you know, early on, I think it goes into the question of like, what is the most difficult part of the journey? And, and there are different kinds of difficulty. You know, we go, went through difficulty of getting over a, a brain block of conceiving of the product, a, a physical difficulty <laughs> of, uh, hurting yourself in, in the inventing process. But, you know, I would say like, you know, something that I still think about to this day is, you know, an emotional difficulty of some things that you may run into that you may hopefully not run into otherwise, which is, well, I told you that, you know, I, I started Singular Sound with my brother early on, you know, we were both very green, uh, didn't know what we were doing, uh, you know, at the time, sort of like dove head in, just sort of product first, like, hey, we have a great idea, let's go, let's make this. And so... Um, you know, as many people do early on, like I, I hired a friend uh, to do some of the parts that, uh, you know, we didn't have time to do or couldn't do as well. And he was doing a phenomenal job and we had a successful crowdfunding campaign. We started selling product and we started making more money and we're like, oh, you know, let's start scaling. Let's uh, let's hire some experts. And we went through the hiring process all wrong, you know. We thought we needed like a person to like some sort of CMO level guy uh, to sort of steer the big ship. It wasn't a big ship. It was a little lifeboat. We had a few people working on it. You don't need like some giant corporate big wig. You need someone in the trenches. That was mistake number one. You know, don't hire from the top down. I think really hire from the bottom up. And when they can't handle the work, you know, get more people to do the work. You know, you only really need management of people when when managing the people becomes a problem. If you are all can sit around the table and talk. You don't need any managers. You know, there doesn't need to be a hierarchy at that stage. You know, that's only going to make things problematic, you know? So we didn't really realize that at the time. And also, you know, this, we had not hired someone for this position. So we didn't have, you know, specific expectations of what the person would be doing and how we would measure the success and how we would know whether or not, um, you know, to keep them on. And so I would say that what you, the one lesson from this, you really need to hire slow, fire fast. And in order to fire fast, you need to have expectations of being like, look, 
I'm going to hire you. Let's say it's a sales job or a marketing job and you're getting paid X amount. I'm expecting Y to happen by month Z. And if month Z doesn't happen, then I'm sorry, it just didn't work out because what we hired you to do didn't happen. And that makes it a lot less of a difficult conversation because it's like, hey, I believe in you and, and you know, we have a great relationship, but I hired you to do X, you didn't do X. Uh, so it almost like the contract fires the person for you, you know, makes it a lot simpler. It also gives you something to not delude yourself, right? You can't tell yourself, uh, oh, well, you know, I'm sure they're going to pick up, you know, it's like, no, you had a goal from the beginning, do X, you know, by time Y. And because otherwise, you know, especially if you want to believe the best in people, you're, you're going to keep making excuses. And that's kind of what happened. The person was not performing. We hired the wrong person for the wrong job. So two double whammies, shouldn't have been CMO, shouldn't have been this guy in particular. And my friend, um, he was a little older than me, so he had a little bit more experience. And he's like, hey, this guy's not performing, you know, and I think this guy's like lying to you about like his abilities and everything like that. And I was like, no, I believe in him. You know, he's he's going to be so great. He's really going to going to scale. And oh, these little dips in the performance metrics are just temporary because we're doing like a, a redesign and a campaign and there's a dip for the thing. And I gave way too much leeway. I didn't have metrics that I expected uh, and was going to stick to. I fired, you know, incredibly slowly. And that really poisoned my relationship with my friend because he felt like he was right. And he was right, which makes it even worse. Um, and I didn't listen to him, which I did not. And he's like, hey, you don't have my back. You don't listen to me. I'm not appreciated. You're ruining you know, the company. And therefore, I can't uh, exist with this. And then, uh, you know, he quits. And our relationship ever since then, you know, had been strained. And, and like, had I had a little bit more wisdom, you know, before diving into this, you know, you could have, well, I could have prevented, you know, all of this from happening by having being smarter about hiring uh, being smarter about firing and having metrics, uh, understanding that it's not even just about the individuals and their individual roles, but how they get along with each other. Even if the guy was good at his job, like even if we were to pretend that that was the case, if he didn't get along with, you know, one of the very few other people in the company, that is not a sustainable practice and one of them has to go. So, you know, I sort of just like imagined, oh, he's going to do better and then, He's going to realize that this person's fine. They're going to mend their relationship. And um, none of that was the case. So, you know, I, I really hope that yeah, future entrepreneurs uh, can really set expectations. You know, it's kind of like getting into a relationship. If you don't have expectations, there's a lot of room to hurt each other with uh, violating of those expectations, you know, of how you thought you would each behave and everything like that. And uh, business relationships tend to last longer than the average marriage in the U.S. Take from that what you will. <laughs> so I think that uh, we really need to be paying more attention, um, well, probably to all our relationships, but I think we sort of underplay the importance of, of setting relationship expectations and, and relationship building um, with people in the business realm. Yeah. I, I, th I think those are some really, really good lessons and some important lessons that um, can be really, really difficult to learn, uh, as, kind of like you mentioned, but uh, especially good early on uh, for companies. But really, at any stage, you know how how do you know, how does how does it all kind of fit together, and, and how do you have of the right not only people in place, but the right metrics in place, kind of like you talked about. So you know what is it that we're trying to accomplish, and how does that all 
fit together. And I especially liked what you said about, you know, it's especially early on. And I think this is especially true, probably about most teams and companies. It's a, it's really about the people doing the work first, and then it scales up from there and much less about, you know, the people managing, you know, that, that kind of happens as you grow. And I've seen that happen a couple of times too, where, you know, companies hire a lot of management layers well before they, they hire a lot of the people doing the work. And it becomes kind of this really top heavy uh, thing that really starts to become unbalanced. And it's this very, very strange dynamic of like, you have a lot of managers and reporting layers compared to like the people doing the actual work. And so, you know, that kind of like you were mentioning with, you know, the very early stages that you were at, but can happen at almost any stage of company where that happens. And it becomes a very, very strange dynamic of, you know, you have a lot of, of management, especially compared to people like actually creating the products or the features or things. And that can really make things unbalanced quickly. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you only get managers if there's something that needs yeah. managing, you know, even if there is something that needs to be managed, really ask yourself the question, can this be improved with better communication or do we need a dedicated manager? And if you can solve it without a dedicated manager, uh, that's just going to be a better result. Like not only do you not have to pay for someone and you don't have to create some weird dynamics, but like, it's going to save you money. Yeah. You don't have to hire someone. <laughs> you know? So the, the, and, and, and I understand that as you, as you scale a company, you know, that's pretty difficult to do with if you have like a 500 person team you know, or something like that. Um, and things truly do change with scale, you know, just like ecology, you know, like there's a, there is a difference. Uh, the more, the bigger it gets, you know, so there's certain like emergent properties that happen and, you know, you don't want to underestimate those. But really, I would caution against management in general if you can at all avoid it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now I'm curious, you, we've kind of touched on this a couple of times, but as you've, you know, created these products, you know, with Instafloss and some of the other ones that you've, you've done and, you know, you've done the crowdfunding campaigns, how have you really gauged the product market fit for, you know, these various products and inventions that you've done, especially as you've gone from, you know, the early phases of, you know, really understanding the problem and gauging, you know, there's a need here to, hey, we've, you know, we've kind of created the right product now and, and we're ready to kind of get this out there. Um, how do you know that, yeah, we've, we've taken the right problem, you know, kind of like with your InstaFloss example, we've got the right problem. We have now created what we think is the right solution. And, and now this is the thing that is going to be the right thing to solve this problem, you know, how, how, how have you approached that and, and really understood that, you know, we've, we've nailed it or, you know, we're, we're close to nailing it either through, you know, your crowdfunding campaigns or through, you know, your different launches. Right. I mean, I, I think there's many elements to product market fit, right? Because, and, and I think this should be distinguished from prob, uh, from product problem fit, right? So, you might have a product that solves a problem. And I actually uh, uh, ran into this with, um, with one product that I tried to develop and uh, actually never came to market to because it was a product solution fit, but it wasn't a product market fit. And where this distinct distinction is, 
is, okay, we've, we've talked a bit about product solution fits, you know, does it solve a need? Does it solve a need? It's in a significant way. That I would say probably could be answered intuitively. Like you almost could do that by yourself with your imagination on your couch. You probably don't need to bring anyone. Now, now I, I would strongly advise that <laughs> you do uh, get other opinions. You might think it's a great idea and everybody else hates it. And you're like, what's going on, you know? And obviously the more data, the better, you know, talk to your friends and your family and your extended family. Then if you can somehow do like some sort of tests with like, the more people, the better. If you get it on the market and you see your Amazon reviews, that's how you really know <laughs> your uh, product solution or product problem have you a solution problem? <laughs> solution is a product. I don't know how you want to call this. Um, the, but product market is a little different because there's more to the market than just does it solve the problem. And I would say probably the number one thing I'm going to go out on a limb and say is the price. Um, you can solve a problem. And if you solve it for some excessive amount of money, it doesn't have a market fit because people think this is a problem, but they think this is a $99 problem. So I had an idea for a product and I thought it was a great product, but the when we actually got to engineering prototypes and we started getting quotes and we realized how expensive it was going to be, we're like, hey, we can't actually come to market with this price because uh, there's probably five millionaires out there who's like, oh yeah, that's great, but that's not a sustainable business. So in order to know the price, this is very difficult to know if it's your first time. And then the more products you come out with it, the better you're going to get estimating a price. And you're always going to be wrong, uh, <laughs> just, just straight up. Like you don't know the price, but you can estimate. Um, one back of the napkin, this is really rough way you can estimate what it will cost. Um, as a person, let's say you have no engineering background, you have no manufacturing background, you've never come out with a product, just to get an idea is let's say, let's say you have um, a, a, an idea for a, a flashlight that, you know, has two bulbs on it instead of one. I don't know, right? I, I don't even know why people would want this. Actually, there are flashlights with two bulbs. What am I saying? But forget the example, just, just the concept. So you have this device and it has certain features. Look at other products with those features and say, hey, I want to create something that has this much battery and, and this big of a light bulb and it's this size because you might underestimate the shipping costs. Like a lot of things on Amazon, probably like a third of the cost for some of these small items has nothing to do with like, whoa, why is a, is a, is a two inch piece of plastic, you know, costing $10? Well, it's because you have to pay for the plastic, but then you have to ship it all the way from China across the world and put it in Amazon and then pay for the storage and then pay for the marketing and then pay to ship it in a UPS box, two days overnight shipping in an airplane to the customer. You know, so like the logistical element of that is um, significant and way more significant than the cost of the plastic. So if you're not used to manufacturing in a country and then paying for shipping and then paying for the logistics and paying for shipping to the customer, et cetera, one way that you might get a rough estimate is be like, well, this product seems to have these features that I want and it's going for 20 bucks. So I imagine that they are doing this economically. They're at least turning some kind of profit. And maybe you want to add a feature and you're like, okay, what if I'm like this $20 product, but I added this thing? Okay, what other products have that thing? And then like do a worst case scenario of be like, okay, well, you know, I can find this in isolation and it costs that. So, so that's very back in the napkin. And I would say 
That's only to give you an idea of if your concept is in the ballpark. Um, then I would start talking to engineers and being like, hey, this is my idea. You know, can we prototype this and start working on prototypes and start getting quotes? You know, you can go to Alibaba and see how much search and electronics cost. If it's an electrical device, uh, you can get like, you know, manufacturers are happy to give you quotes all day if you have something to get quoted. You, know? <laughs> uh, you can't just give them like a back of a napkin sketch. But if you take that and you either prototype it yourself or get engineers to do it, which, of course, requires some level of capital. Um, which, of course, is his own obstacle, but that's an obstacle that we really can talk about, um, you know, in a whole hour. You know, yeah. that, that's like, okay, like everything's going to cost time and money, and that's a problem we could solve uh, in a whole other uh, uh, discussion. But assuming you can get a prototype, and then you get a quote, and then you have some sort of ballpark, and then you want to get quotes at different, you know, what if we make 100, 1,000, 10,000, 20,000 units? What's it going to cost to ship? And you start asking all these questions. If you want to sell it, for example, on Amazon, what is Amazon's fees? Um, you know, uh, am I shipping it to the customer? I have to add that in. And so you add on all these things. A general rule of thumb is that if your cost of the product is uh, less, uh, sorry, is three, is one third or uh, more, if it's a third or more than the, um, than the final sale price, you probably don't have a sustainable product that you can actually sell. So if you're selling it for a hundred bucks, you know, that's where it has to be in terms of price, your maximum price that you could manufacture it for and, and have a viable business is probably 33 bucks. There may be some very rare exceptions, but if you get some quotes and you're like, it's $40 or $50, I would strongly caution you against believing that you're going to sell that for $99 and have a sustainable business. Um, the lower, it costs, obviously, the better. If it's a fourth, if it's a fifth, you know, if it's a six, then, then that's phenomenal. If it really costs less than a six, then you have to wonder if you're pricing it too high. Uh, <laughs> you may or you may not. If you have no patents, you almost certainly are because someone's going to come in at a 3x or 4x multiple. If you have patents, you might be able to get away with uh, a 6x multiple of your cost or something like that. Just because, you know, there, there's this sort of comparative pricing. Almost Anything that costs $10 is rarely sold for 200. People have an idea of like, well, all this has is a battery and a tiny little thing and a screen that's two inches and everything else that's like this is this cost. And you're charging five times that. So therefore, people have an intuitive sense. They don't really know how much it costs to manufacture, but they have an idea of what these sorts of components go for. You know, and that sort of goes yeah. back to the original thing. When the components are floating out there, all you're doing is piecing it together, you know, and, and people already know about these components. So I would say price is probably the biggest thing because there's a difference between making a device for yourself and making it for everyone. Uh, so that's probably the largest element of product market. But then there's another question of product market. Let's say you're like, okay, I love the solution. And I think that this is a competitive price. Well, what is the market size? How many people actually care? I've, I've come up with ideas that I've never pursued because it was honestly something that like solved such a niche problem that only like me and like two friends, one little niche thing is really going to care about. And that's not, it's not mass manufacturable. You have to think about mass manufacturing. You have to, it's only economical at scale like mostly speaking, you know, you can have like an Etsy shop and sell knitted sweaters or something like that. And that's probably economical, but not very scalable. Um, 
And if that's your thing, then you know I'll, I'll power to you. But if we're talking about like a patented device that you want to get to everybody who has this problem, uh, handcrafting is, I want to say never, rarely, never going <laughs> to solve that, that problem. Um, so you have to have to wonder how big the market is. And this can be challenging because um, you can Google like, like what I was doing is like a you know, flossing market size and you're going to get, um, you're going to get five different reports and they're going to have wildly different numbers. Like I saw a report that said the entire flossing industry is like $200 million. And I was like, I can name you like multiple companies that make more than that on one of their flossing products, yep. you know, straight up. Uh, like it's ridiculous. And so, so you really have to wonder like how, how credible are some of the reports you're looking at. So what I like to find is if I can find multiple touch points of information to see if I can corroborate it in other ways. So for example, you might find a company that is publicly traded and you might be able to find their sales data and they may be able to tell you what they estimate their market share to be. So they're, made, they're selling $500 million worth of this a year and they have 10%. Like, oh, okay, wow, it's a $5 billion market. Maybe they could be wrong too. They don't, they don't know. Um, so then you look up reports and then if you see, okay, this other report said that it's 5 billion. Okay, now we have two things. And then one thing I really like is I use a tool called Jungle Scout uh, that scrapes Amazon data. I'm sure there's other things that do this. I'm not paid by them. I, <laughs> I would love to get a kickback. <laughs> but what it does is you can type in certain keywords and you can see how much of, of product X is selling on Amazon. So this is very powerful because that's real undeniable numbers. And now, granted, Amazon is just a tiny fraction. Uh, well, not, not necessarily tiny, depends on what you're talking about, but it is a fraction of a market. So you need to find other sources that tell you how much of this product is sold on Amazon. So, for example, if you're, I don't know, making a pharmaceutical drug, the answer is probably going to be 0%. You know, and you could jungle scout Amazon all day long and say, oh, you know, this drug is not being sold on Amazon, therefore the market is zero. Well, that's nonsense. Uh, because it's it's the zero percent of the market is there, uh, but then if you find the report that says okay twenty percent of the market is on Amazon, and then you see what Amazon is, and then you find and you're like okay so twenty uh, percent of the market and we said it was five billion therefore it's one billion is on Amazon so you've got one touch point of the it corroborates with the market share of Amazon it corroborates with some report and it corroborates with some company now you have a strong belief a strong amount of evidence you know. Um, Evidence isn't proof, but uh, a, a lot of evidence is a really good indication. You know, what was the saying? Uh, well, one piece of evidence is a coincidence. Uh, two pieces of evidence is a clue. Three pieces of evidence is damning. Um, <laughs> I don't want to say that, that those metrics are strictly true, but uh, you want to corroborate it in a lot of ways. And then you can say like, okay, there's actually a lot of people who want this mousetrap and I have a better one and I can actually make it for a price that's competitive and I can be uh, uh, patented uh, and I love it. Now you have something that you can go to market with. You know, you have to answer all of all of these questions because otherwise you're going to have something that, you know, you don't love. If you've never actually made a prototype and tested it yourself, maybe your idea wasn't that good. You'll have something that's too expensive, even if there's a huge market for it. Uh, no one's going to be able to buy. You might have something that, even if it's a good price and you love it, there isn't that much people who give a damn. And then you might have something that maybe you love. It's a good price. There's a lot of people who give a damn, but you can't patent it. 
And some big company is going to come in and steal your thunder in just a couple of years. So not necessarily. There are ways around it. And a patent's not the only one. You can be more capitalized. You can be smarter. You know, there are people who are really good at marketing in certain ways. And they're like, we understand TikTok and all these companies don't have any idea about TikTok. And we're going to make a ton of money on TikTok. And that's 100% true. You don't even need a product to do that. There are people who their only um, added value is that they can market it better. Uh, in fact, I would say that's probably most businesses. Um, but here we're talking about products. So um, so I would say that those are the, the, the strictly speaking, those, those are the four things that you need to look at. Awesome. That's, that's really, really good. What, what advice would you have for anybody starting or considering launching a new product or new business like, like you have been doing and, and like you have done? Yeah, I mean, Narrowing it down to one piece of advice is uh, <laughs> difficult. <laughs> um, definitely listen to this podcast religiously. <laughs> Get as much wisdom as you can because you don't have the time or the funding to make all the mistakes yourself. Uh, I've made a lot of mistakes. Some of them have been very expensive. You know, my education you know, has cost me a million dollars in losses in one year because I did not fire the right person because I ignored all the signs, you know, that's expensive. That's way more expensive than, than school or a course or a, a book. Books are cheap. Books are great. Read books, listen to people, get advice and understand that you are never going to be ready. You can only be less unprepared. <laughs> and um, when you feel like you have done about as much research as you can, you know, like your idea is good, your idea is patentable, uh, your idea can be made um, in a in a cost-effective way, your idea has a lot of demand, you have the ability to pursue it, uh, you know, you might not be able to, you can, everything could be there, but you're not the guy, uh, I don't know, you were just elected to president and you're kind of busy and it would be kind of unethical for you to pursue this product, you know, like that that's possible, you know, I would recommend that if you're ever elected to the presidency that you you don't do this, that'd be very strange, you know, so, but like, think about your, your life and your situation. Um, can you get the funding? Do you have the money? If you don't have the money, you know, how confident are you? And also start small, start with a prototype. Can you, before you go in and be like, I need a million dollars to hire the engineers and to go to market and build the molds and manufacture this and do the marketing and hire the people, well, can you make one device and can you test it and can you love it? And if you can't do that, then you certainly can't do everything else. You know, products fundamentally, you know, have to be good or everything else falls apart. So start with the product, make one little gizmo for yourself. And if you can't scrounge up the money to do that, um, well, then maybe start reading about how you can, you know, because I do think that there are, are ways that uh, you can overcome these financial difficulties. But if you can't scrounge up the money to make a, a single prototype, you are never going to be able to scrounge up the money to make a million of them. You know, that's just the, the fundamental fact. You have to be able to convince people to, to prove the concept. And if you prove the concept, you're going to be in a much better position because you can give it to someone and you can say, try this. And if they love it, then they're emotionally invested. And then the logic goes out the window. And then they're going to be like, you have no experience, but here's money. And that's brilliant on my part because <laughs> I had a good experience. <laughs> so start with the product because everything depends on it. I think that's, that's, that's really, really good. 
Um, cause that's so fundamental and so important. So starting small and starting with the product and really the basics of, of what you're trying to do. And then, you know, kind of building off of that. I absolutely love that. Well, I have, this is, well, first off, this has been an amazing conversation. I feel like we could take it down a couple different roads and, and have probably, um, entire, and a few entire episodes on a couple different topics, uh, which is great. And we may actually have to do at some point, uh, cause, cause I think that there's a lot to, to cover, but before we kind of wrap this up and I, I have a couple of final questions for you, but is there anything, uh, that you wanted to add that we've, that we talked about or that we didn't get a chance to talk about? Shameless plugs. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I'll, I was going to ask about that as well. And, and if, uh, where can people find out more about you and the products that you have created? It's a great question. Um, unfortunately, sometimes uh, great questions you know, have to be equally matched with great answers. I feel like I'm dropping the ball on that one. Um, the answer is probably yes, but I can't think of anything right now. I mean, there's so much, you know, I'm, pretty bad with generals no i know there's been there's a ton that i know we could dive into which is is um i know I, i've jotted down a couple of things that we may actually have to come back and, and revisit on some of the the manufacturing process and some of the almost start to finish because i think that would be that would be fascinating along with some of the whole just some of the other areas and maybe even some of the other businesses, but I mean, there's, there's uh, manufacturing, there's engineering, there's yeah. team management, and of course, capital raising, none of which we've got I know. into at all. And that's just so much. It, it is so much. <laughs> all right. Well, where can people find out more about you, about, uh, some of your, uh, your other, your businesses, singular sound, Instafloss, anything else that you have done, you're working on right now, anything else? Um, well, you can find out about my first company, Singular Sound, by going to singularsound.com. That's like one sound, singular with an S, singularsound.com. And if you want to find out about a device that can floss all your teeth in 10 seconds, and we're also actually doing a capital raise, which um, is something that we haven't even uh, touched upon, but you can find out more about that. Go to instafloss.com. It's like an instant floss, instafloss or like Instagram, but instafloss.com because it's an instant floss or near instant, 10 seconds. And you'll read, you'll be able to read a lot about it. And I, I do want to say that we are coming out with more products. Uh, we're currently keeping those kind of secrets. Can't stop, won't stop. <laughs> but if you subscribe to our mailing list, uh, depending on if you're interested in music products or hygiene products, go to singularsound.com or instafloss.com, subscribe to what you're interested in, and you'll be the first to know when I go through the process that we've talked about and hopefully successfully and come up with something that solves a problem you might have. Awesome. Well, well we will put all those links in the show notes so you can check those out. And that sounds really, really cool. All right. I wanted to wrap up and we usually wrap up with a couple uh, final questions. And you have a lot of books in your background for those who aren't watching. Um, you have entire bookshelves, what looks like floor to ceiling, but I can't see to the floor, but definitely up to the, it ceiling. Is floor to ceiling. It is floor to ceiling um, of books. So uh, have you read 
or watched or listened to anything recently that you have enjoyed and would like to share? Um, yeah. Um, so I'm currently going through Graeber's collection of books. He was a anthropologist at the London School of Economics. Um, nothing to do with invention or business, kind of like the opposites. Um, he had a book, actually this one, this one of his books did, uh, I, I like kind of like getting into like an author and their like worldview. If I think that they're worth exploring and, and Graeber is one of these people who I think I disagree with him about all of his conclusions, <laughs> but I really respect the research he puts into it. And, um, I've looked up as many of his sources as I could, and I don't think he's fit, right? I'm, I'm pretty sure based on my, the best of my ability to do the research, I've also talked to people who are uh, fairly experts in certain things that he's written about. And, you know, I've been like, hey, he said this, this, and this, and that sounds weird, you know? And they're like, well, well, then, you know, that's true. And, but then, you know, he has an opinion and you can disagree with the opinion, but his, his research is phenomenal. His perspective is refreshing. And so he wrote a book called Bullshit Jobs, which is about how, you know, in his estimation, a large percentage of jobs don't need to be done <laughs> and, you know, exist for non-economical reasons. You know, we think that businesses are fairly rational. And, you know, as, as you've heard from my own experience, I was not acting rationally, you know. Um, and I, I, know I think we tend to underestimate the level of human error and human culture and human emotions that, that go into all these things, especially when incentives are misaligned. You know, if every single person is an equal shareholder of the company, maybe everybody's thinking about the company and, you know, the bottom line of the company and acting in an economical way. But that's not how we set up companies typically um, in our part of the world or any part of the world, really, with like minor exceptions like pirate ships. Um, so you know, people act in certain ways that, that uh, benefit, you know, them or their self-esteem and everything like that. And this has some perverse consequences. So Bullshit Jobs was phenomenal. Um, I recently read Debt, which he has written as a history of the concept of debt. Where does it come from? Uh, you know, why do we think that like paying your debts is a moral necessity? Is this true of all cultures? He argues that um, we tend to view um money as arriving from barter and then it gets more complicated and eventually we have like you know derivatives and debt and all sorts of things on that that is based upon a quantitative financial system and he argues through a lot of um anthropological case studies um that it's actually the other way around that m money what came about post debt as a way of tracking debt uh super fascinating and i'm, I'm trying to get through all of his books his books are super long, uh, but but super interesting, and you don't have to agree with him in order to find them stimulating, and I certainly find them stimulating. So that that's been my current um, current uh, deep dive. Awesome. Well, I will have to check those out because that those really do sound fascinating, um, and I I love adding uh, some new kind of out of the normal genre uh reading to my list so i'm definitely going to check that out and my wife is actually an anthropologist uh, archaeologist so i'm gonna i'm gonna have to push some of those her way as well yeah, see, see what she thinks 
I'm sure she has an opinion whether or not it's positive or negative. Uh, undoubtedly. So we'll, we'll have to check those out together. Awesome. All right. Last question. And I'm excited for, for your thoughts on this being a person who is very much into different products, but is there anything, any product, whether digital or physical that you have used uh, recently or, or, or somewhat recently that you've liked or disliked? So I'm going to get into something that I haven't used it yet, but I ordered it and it's in the mail and I'm excited. <laughs> um, so I, this is not a review because I have not used the product. It could be crap. Sometimes implementation matters uh, just as much as the concept, right? You could have a great concept, but then it's buggy or it's janky and it doesn't feel right. And it completely ruins the experience. Totally possible. You know, you, you have to match your creativity with your engineering. But this product actually came from my invention journal, not for me. I never did anything with it. And I have a rule that if anything is created that uh, was on my invention journal, I buy it. Uh, because if, if I don't buy something that I put on my invention journal that I thought of, that I thought I needed, and then when it comes out in the market, I'm like, oh, I'm not going to buy that. Why did I think of that? Why did I even think of pursuing it? You know, if I'm not going to buy my own, uh, I don't know if you use the word invention if you didn't actually make a prototype, but my own concept, you know? So, um, and by the way, if you have ever thought of something and you're like, hey, wouldn't it be great if, if we had a product that does X? And then you look at on Google or you look on Amazon and you see the product that does X, don't be disheartened that someone beat you to it. Be encouraged that you have good ideas. Your idea was so good that if you had done it, you would have been making money. Look at that. It has four stars. It's four and a half stars. People love it. That could have been you. Your idea was good. Sometimes if you have an idea and it's not out there, maybe it's actually a bad idea. <laughs> so that's always something you should be concerned about. So I take it sort of as like a confirmation that you're on the right creative path. If you've come up with an idea, then you search it and it exists in the world already. It's both disappointing, but it's also reaffirming. So one of these products was, you may notice if you're watching the video of this podcast that I have this shifty eye look where I'm like looking to the side, I'm looking to the other side. And that's because my webcam's way up here and the information is way down here. And that's not how we talk in real life. We tend to look each other in the eye. And if people don't look you in the eye, uh, you kind of seem shifty. I promise you it's just because I'd actually rather look at Kyle than, than look at a <laughs> tiny little LED that is going to hurt my eyes after a few minutes. But it doesn't look like I'm looking at Kyle. So the product is a webcam that has, uh, and I believe if I read it correctly, a retractable cord and the webcam is on the cord and it has like a little magnetic piece. So you could pull it down from your where you store your webcam at can on top of your monitor. And then you can place it maybe, you know, right where the third eye is of that other individual. So you can look right at them. You can see their face and everything like that. And it looks like you're having um, uh, an eye to eye conversation. I think that's going to be phenomenal. I'm really excited for it. I hope it's good. I hope they um, did a good job making it. And I hope they make tons of money. And I hope that like they take over the market and every webcam in the future uses their product. And I never looked up to see if they patented it, but if it was patented and they're killing it and they sell for a billion dollars, you know, it feel really good that like the, the ideas that you come up with are good. It could have been you. You could do something else. That's okay. You didn't have time for it all, but at least you know that's, that you came up with a good idea. And that's always step one. Yeah. Uh, I'll be excited to hear about that. I may have to check it out too, because I have seen I feel like I've seen the videos for it like appear in, in different feeds of like, Hey, you can 
you can pull it down and, and have it actually sit in your screen. So it looks like you're looking at people because I'm doing the same shifty thing where I'm looking at like uh, various things. I have like information and have like the two uh, two videos. And then I also have like other settings and stuff. So like I'm shifting back and forth, which is less than ideal when you're when you're on video, whether on a podcast or whether you're in a meeting or whatever the case is, because you're kind of back and forth. And I think I feel like we're all doing it now since we're all on videos uh, and I'm doing it right now. So this is was one of those like really great ideas that it's, it feels like a super simple solution that solves like a really nice little problem. So I think that's a great exactly. one. Yeah. I would rank it like a, a four by yep. two. Yep. Awesome. Um, well, Ellie, this has been such a, a really, really great conversation. I appreciate it. I appreciate all the insight and you walking us through your journey, uh, your kind of your process, uh, you know, where you've been, where you are now. Um, I think ev hopefully everybody has enjoyed it as well, because I have thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. So really appreciate it. Appreciate you taking the time. Um, it, it's just been really, really enjoyable. Thank you, Kyle. It's been a lot of fun talking about uh, my passion, my hobbies, my business. It's pretty all rolled into one. Yeah. Well, we can't wait to hear more about, you know, what you're creating right now, what's coming out in the future. So look forward to many more products and inventions going forward. Me too. Me too. And I look forward to talking to you and letting you know my review uh, about the, the product that's in the mail. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks again, Ellie. And thank you everybody for listening. We will talk again next time. Talk soon. Thanks again for listening. If you like the show, be sure to follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can follow the show on Twitter at prod by design. That's prod underscore by underscore design. You can follow me at Kyle Larry Evans on Twitter as well. If you want more product conversation, check out my newsletter product thinking at productthinking.cc. You can follow me on Medium at Kaya Larry Evans as well, or check out my Medium publication, uh, Product by Design. Thanks again.